and this is the overlap with mindfulness in a way that we call that metacognitive awareness. So we're becoming aware of our own processes of thinking and uh, judging ourselves. And so mindfulness and cognitive therapy are then sense very similar that, that we are developing in both approaches an awareness of what the mind is actually creating in different assumptions about reality around us. You have found the Thinking Mind podcast. Today we're going to be doing a podcast about mindfulness meditation and I'll be in conversation with Dr. Florian Root, who is a consultant psychiatrist and leads a mindfulness-based stress reduction group for doctors. And we'll be talking about how he got into meditation, what are the benefits that he's got from it and how it's changed his perspective on things, as well as how mindfulness meditation is applied to patients such as those with anxiety and depression how mindfulness links with cognitive behavior therapy, and also some of the cautions that one should apply around mindfulness in certain patient groups. So once again, I hope you find this conversation valuable. And here is Dr. Florian Ruth. I'm very pleased to be here today with Dr. Florian Roots. Uh, Dr. Roots, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. I wonder if we could get started by perhaps you could explain a little bit about your, your background and training, and then we can dive a bit deeper into to mindfulness. I think you know, looking back over my life, I probably was always interested in the more intimate emotional experience of human beings. <laughs> so... Any conversation that would actually give me a more sort of authentic reflection of what people are actually experiencing, both emotionally and cognitively, and all the doubts and difficulties that they might have experienced in their heads has always been an interest of mine. You know, I think my my conversations with my friends are not that different from my conversation with my patients in a way that I'm just (laughs) wanting to know what's going on for them and wanting to be close to that and also wanting to fix it. You know, let's let's be clear, you know, I I think, uh, you know, one gets into medicine because we want to help and want to you know help people change um and always perhaps having sometimes the grandiose <laughs> delusion that i would be able to to fix people by just talking to them um <laughs> and uh, and so yeah i think that's you know why my how my career then progressed to um sort of immediately then going to psychiatry noticing that the ward work was rewarding and talking to people was rewarding but what i really wanted to do is get more into talking to people and then I um, had a training session by David Wheel as a as an SHO, um, who's he, David is now the professor at the institute and a you know world renowned expert in CBT for anxiety disorders, particularly body dysmorphic disorders. But he gave me his first session of CBT and explained the basic model. and And I remember looking at him and saying, "You must be joking." <laughs> You know, if you think something in the wrong way, that influences your feelings. And, uh, and I thought this is really sort of a very different way of how I imagine psychotherapy to be. <clears throat> but having said that, um, I then decided, well, this makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's also you know, a nice bit of science behind it. So I started basically doing a training in cognitive behavioral therapy, <clears throat> became, you know, at the Institute uh, of Psychiatry. Um, course and then from then onwards um, as part of that CBT training I then got a sort of to review a paper by Mark Williams and John Teasdale which was about mindfulness based cognitive therapy so meditation coming in I thought what's this Uh, so John Teasdale was teaching on the course himself and yeah I decided well I just need to test that this is interesting as evidence uh, mindfulness meditation works (laughs) you know so how how old were you at this point? How old was I at that point? Um, I was that was in two thousand and one. Two, yeah, two thousand one. I was about thirty six years old. I then started. I was confined, as I, I um, interpreted that day, um, to go to Maidstone to uh, do old age psychiatry in Maidstone as an SPR for a year. And I thought I was really not very happy with that. I thought, why do I have to go to Maidstone? I did that on my motorcycle. But I used that motorcycle trip to actually do mindfulness meditation on the motorcycle, um, becoming aware of, you know, the wind and the noises and uh, my visual impressions. And that sort of really got me into meditation. And then I did some training with um, John Kabat-Zinn, 
um, in 2003 in Mount Madonna in California for a week I met him there delivering his mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, and then from then onwards I sort of sort of started delivering um, MBCT programs at Morsley with colleagues first and then patients so that's a bit of my journey how I got into mindfulness uh, what were your first meditation experiences like um I think my first meditation experiences probably were much really sort of becoming aware what actually attention actually is. Um, I think attention is something that plays a big role in mindfulness. And we just don't normally actually notice attention. We, and attention is an automatic process. Um, and sort of the fact that we are actually placing or we can somehow make choices about where we put our attention was an intriguing first discovery doing mindfulness on the motorcycle and saying, okay, I am not, none of, not going to ruminate. I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to really just attend to the wind uh, blowing over my face or the sounds of cars overtaking me uh, or the visual impression when it's raining or, uh, you know, when it's dark um, and, 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 and just really focusing my attention on these kind of different aspects of my sensory experience. And I think that was news to me at that stage. I didn't, hadn't sort of noticed that as a, something that I could do. Mm -hmm. So I suppose it's a fundamental aspect of mindfulness practice is making the choice to focus your attention on one or, or another sensory stimulus and then to notice sort of when you get distracted from doing that and then to refocus your attention to, to someone who might be skeptical about this endeavor, what would you say is the benefit? What is there to find by doing this practice? Mindfulness meditation is definitely more than just attentional training. So I'd like to sort of expand on that a little bit. Um, so for the skeptic who first thinks about sort of doing or not doing meditation practice, it is literally just sort of familiarizing ourselves with something that um, opens a whole new door to a different way of being in the world. So initially, when we look at the cost benefit of why I should or should not do this, um, it's a bit of a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. So the leap of faith would be that I can't promise any outcome. Um, I can't promise that you will find anything. I can only promise that if you do it on a regular basis, you will somehow, the benefits will emerge. Um, so uh, I would probably like to compare it to um, sort of getting somebody who hasn't exercised for a decade to say, well, I think it's good for you to exercise because you might argue the person hasn't exercised for the last decade. You might say, well, I've got little twinges here and there, but overall I'm okay. You know, why should I exercise? Mm -hmm. um, and, so it, it, it's sort of several aspects to it. it. It takes a bit of a leap of faith with regards to saying, I think this is worth doing. Uh, and you need to just do it in order to find it for yourself, to experience for yourself. Yeah. The other aspect is obviously sort of presenting the person with a rationale why it's worth doing. And, and that's obviously a whole new sort of different area where you can obviously sort of read and display all the evidence of the benefit uh, of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, you're right. I think in a way it's, it, it is a bit of both. What have you found the benefits been for yourself personally? Uh, it's it, it's a very interesting question because I ask myself sometimes uh, if I see, see myself as a randomized controlled trial, uh, <laughs> you know, sliding door scenario. So the sliding door one scenario, I, I decided mindfulness is a lot yeah. of rubbish. I will not do it. <laughs> and then I follow my life then uh, versus I decided mindfulness is something that is meaningful in my life and I, I will engage with it on a regular basis. Um, I wouldn't necessarily know where I would have been with the first scenario. Yeah, you don't know the counterfactual. Exactly. So so we have only got one way of sort of experiencing ourselves and, and the whole process. What I have found is, you know, when I compare myself to a lot of people around me, you know, we all go through... Uh, uh, sort of adversity. Um, we all go through um, difficulties. We go through difficulties at work. We go through difficulties with our health. Uh, we go through difficulties in our relationships with others. And so the life throws these challenges at us. And 
so we then look at ourselves and see how we're coping with this and you know without going into too many details i think i've had a fair share of that and you know i look at myself and i think well i've i've come out all right you know sort of survived and you know you one wonders how one does that is that genetic is it just our personality is it our sort of temperament or is it something that we've done right uh, and i sometimes like to basically convince myself that i've done something right by meditating um, mm-hmm. but i i wouldn't know if how i'd been without it um so I, I convinced myself that the evidence that we have about the influence of meditation i've experienced that myself so all the you know the resilience building that we can see from the studies might have actually sort of shown itself somehow Mm-hmm. So it's something to do with the relationship with adversity, which, of course, if you looked at if you look at Buddhism from which mindfulness meditation derives, some of the primary tenets of that philosophy is that life is characterized by suffering; that suffering is omnipresent, and you know anyone that's lived is aware of that, and that through some kind of introspective practice, be it meditation or be it therapy or be it whatever, these practices allow one to develop a different relationship with adversity because you can't really get rid of adversity and there's only a certain extent to which one can overcome it. One has to find a new way of being in relationship to uncertainty, in relationship to the fact that to some degree life is tragic for for everyone talking a bit more about the the research that's been done about mindfulness what do you think are the more salient points to be found there i went to a talk recently uh, a couple of years ago um where a professor from america um was talking about how many studies it took to convince us that exercise is good for us <laughs> and she said it took roughly about 100,000 studies uh, to really sort of confirm that exercise is actually benefit beneficial for our health and so we are now sort of probably at the realm of 12 to 15,000 studies of what you know uh, of studies are being published in the world literature showing that mindfulness in some shape or form has got beneficial effects so we we're still far away from the, from the exercise literature <laughs> um so 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 this is just to, to put the wider context of you know where we are how many studies does it take us to convince that something is beneficial is is a really really sort of big big philosophical issue i think what i'd like to highlight in the literature is that um sort of obviously the big meta analysis that we've got so sort of if we look at the highest level of exercise and the meta analysis Uh, do show consistently that there is a, a significantly and a measurable benefit from for, for mental well-being um uh, so we've got sort of an overall sort of psychological well-being measure uh, we've got um anxiety measures that can see that overall mindfulness reduces anxiety mindfulness sort of contributes to us being sort of generally sort of perhaps better in our relationships with others um so that's becomes more relevant you know relevant to the health prof- uh, professionals um and, and and so we can sort of then kind of do divide this research into do we do with certain groups yeah so when we look at sort of patient base uh, we can see benefits but then you can also look at professional groups so for example there's a good good meta analysis smaller though uh that also show it works for 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 professionals and health professionals so so i think you know we are sort of collecting a lot of evidence sort of at a higher level and then we can go into small level cohort studies you know randomized controlled sort of cohorts what we follow uh, without perhaps without sort of blinding uh, the interventions etc um so th- these are the levels of evidence that we've got that are quite compelling <clears throat> and i think can't ignore them yeah and i think the analogy to physical training is very appropriate and it's probably important to point out that physical training has only been popular for 50 60 70 years and before that it was considered just as esoteric as meditation is considered today and the idea that most people don't engage in any kind of mental training when fundamentally everything that we experience in the world 
is experienced through the lens of our mind and that we would pay we would make no effort to train our attention but then do all of the other things that mindfulness involves is it's very it's crazy to think about actually and yeah i think it's important obviously that research is carried out and you want the the you want to have some sort of formal scientific inquiry into anything particularly when you're advising that people adopt it on a mass scale at the same time for every kind of individual life involves doing your own series of n equals one experiments and finding out what, what it is that works for you whether it's you know how you eat or how you exercise or how you train your mind or how you engage in relationships like you said you do even with something very straightforward and unexotic like embarking on a career you must have take that leap of faith there is no just like you said there's no guarantee with meditation similarly there's no guarantee with any choice that you make and you never really know what would happen if you had chosen differently i think sometimes i i wonder what it is that people find because i myself probably was quite skeptical about meditation just so sort of listeners are aware i would consider myself an advanced beginner at this point i've done maybe 100 hours of personal meditation some and so i'm still very much at, at the start but i i started from a very skeptical point of view i don't mean skeptical with the kind of capital s i i mean that i was very willing to try it and see what benefits it accrued if any and i did it for something like 10 days and then started to find that i had interesting experiences and that it gave me more of a bird's eye view on how on my mind my thoughts my emotions and that the more i did the more more that happened um, I'm curious about going more intensely, doing things like silent retreat. Have you ever been on a silent retreat? So sort of silent retreats are, are very special experiences because it, they're countercultural experiences um, because we do the exact opposite of what we would normally do. And normally we'd try to stimulate ourselves um, to the best of our abilities with well, sort of visual and auditory influences. And when you go on a silent retreat, as the name says, we're actually sort of literally shutting down our senses, our visual and our auditory senses, and perhaps making other senses more present to us. So our smells and our taste buds and um, our sort of just perhaps also our ability to be with ourselves. Um, a silent retreat means that we're not, we're not encouraged to talk to each other. Um, so we were with 60 other people that we don't necessarily know. We share a smaller space, um, but we're not necessarily encouraged to interact with each other um, in a way that we're not talking to each other because it's silent. Um, and that is very counterintuitive and counter-human almost. So we normally like to talk to each other and we're very sociable animals. Um, we always want to hang out with other animals. Um, so to be with others in a space where we're not talking to each other is a very new experience and we're thrown back to just experiencing ourselves. We're not encouraged you to read. We're not encouraged to, to listen to any uh, sort of podcast or anything. We're not encouraged to use our phones. So it's a very sort of going back to really sort of listening back into yourself. Uh, and, and then I think that in itself offers a lot of uh, sort of interesting experiences with regards to what comes up. Mm -hmm. Typically, from what I've heard, people might find the first few days of adjustment very difficult and they find that their mind's tendency to want stimulation to be very overpowering and overwhelming. But then maybe around three days in, all of a sudden things become more peaceful and, and blissful. Is that more, more or less analogous to your experience? Um, it's very similar to my experience uh, in a way that um, that the first three or four days are often around sort of your mind throwing up a lot of old visitors. You know, sometimes the teachers like to say, oh, the mind's going to the museum. You know, we go over our past. We go over our past relationships, our past friendships, uh, perhaps we're telling ourselves off for perhaps not making a few, you know, mistakes on, you know, on the way. <laughs> um <laughs> 
and uh, all the emotional experiences associated with that. And then eventually, sort of, that's my personal experience. I can't speak for anybody else. Um, the, the mind seems to be sort of settling a little bit. I mean, uh, Willem Kuyken, who's the director of the Oxford uh, Mindfulness Centre, he likes to bring a, a, a sort of a glass of water with a jug of water with some sand in it and he shakes it and then the sand stirs around the water and eventually after a while the sand settles again and then the water pump becomes clear again. And I think that's the best metaphor he finds and I, I agree with him to, 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 to explain what happens with the mind. The, mind, the dust seems to settle a little bit and a clarity arises, which is very unusual to explain or very difficult to explain what that actually feels like. Um, the only thing I can say is I would invite people to experience it and see what happens as we, you know things just calm down. It's a very, um, it's a very, it's almost like a rebooting of the hardware. <laughs> you know, it's a very lovely experience to perhaps calm down and sort of kind of noticing how little we need. We need good food. We need a bit of warmth around us with regards to heating and some people that are not threatening towards us around us to protect us um, and. You know, things are really good. You know, we don't need a lot of stuff that we think we normally need. Do you think people are having that experience now during the times of coronavirus, quarantine, isolation? We almost, if you think about it, we almost live in a society that's anti-silent retreat in its design in terms of we very much live in a system that encourages stimulation, addition, growth, adding more, not, you know, subtracting. And now, obviously, we're in a different situation where people have a lot of things that are being taken away from their lives. And I wonder, do you think that now people have more of an opportunity to have that quiet reflection and to see what it is, you know, like you mentioned, how little we actually need to be content? Uh, that's a wonderful question, Alex. And uh, you know, I, I think I think about it all the time. You know, I, you know, I was asked recently, just yesterday, actually, what's the positive about you know, the, the COVID crisis and the lockdown? And I thought, well, there's one thing I can think of is it's a sort of almost like a world retreat. <laughs> we're all on a retreat now for for not very good reason because we are cursed. <clears throat> we're not we're not invited. Uh, we've just been cursed to do this, and that that will cause resistance within ourselves. Uh, but there is, um, uh, so we're not doing it for very good reasons, <laughs> for this way. Um, well, I suppose you, you could say it's not very good reasons. At the same time, again, if you go back to the historical origins of the, these practices, one of the one of the fundamental drivers was the the unforgiving aspects of life, the tragic and suffering-laden aspects of life which drove people to engage in these contemplative as these contemplative practices so obviously while i think the tragedy of coronavirus and covid can't be understated it it makes sense that this would be a driver for a kind of global period of reflection I, I think maybe it has always been tragedy which spares our sort of deepest insights so let me just break that down a little bit the monastic tradition behind mindfulness is has never been there for us to almost sort of encourage us to be all monastics okay so the monastic tradition has always sort of been a sort of a, a, a sort of a, I would basically sort of conceptualize it as a bit of a lab <laughs> to test the technology in a very intensive way. Uh, and that's how I see it going on a retreat. And I will hopefully bridge it over to what's happening now. So, so the retreat is not encouraging us to all live as monastics or to say that we should all be monks and withdraw from the world. The retreat is an opportunity to, to, to train and to, to help us uh, develop and cultivate a tool that makes us able to go out into life and live life in a slightly different way and be immersed in life and be immersed in the, what you call the suffering. Um, 
of life and as doctors and as mental health professionals and prof health professionals we are obviously very close to that uh, and and we need a tool in order to to help us immerse ourselves so mindfulness is never an encouragement to avoid uh, what's going on out there in the world uh, it's the opposite it, it's mindfulness is something about going into the difficulties and the suffering and, and perhaps also the pain that people are going through and to deal with it in a different way so so in that sense when we think about what's happening now in the world uh, we are being shut down in a way that um, I, I find it fascinating there is just n no narrative happening anymore. You know, when we watch the news, it's like Groundhog Day. What do you mean by that? Um, well, it's interesting because we are narrative species. We like to talk to each other. We like to sort of tell each other stories. And, you know, the biggest thing I'm missing is football. <laughs> because football is the, the biggest story of our lives, you know, where we can just endlessly talk about, you know, the different aspects of it and sort of have a playful and a, and a, and a, and a get, you know, sort of real play around sort of a storytelling that's infinite. Um, and now suddenly we don't have that. There's no gossip because nobody's doing anything. <laughs> so, um, so we are. So you mean it's replaced all our narratives? It, it, our narratives have just shrunk, and that throw, throws us back at our own narrative. I think, and that, that's why I think there is a beneficial, you know, if we see any benefits. There's an opportunity for us to perhaps also be thrown back at our own narrative and, and perhaps also reflecting a little bit about without the action, the distraction that we normally have, um, to basically what's going on for us. So there is an opportunity to really explore mindfulness and mindful awareness uh, in, the, in the lockdown. Um, and as you may know, we are actually providing daily mindfulness practices um, through uh, South London Morsley um, <clears throat> websites simply to, to, to encourage and, and invite people to perhaps use that time to, to connect to suffering and connect to the suffering out there that we all know about um, in a slightly different way, but also perhaps finding out how we respond to that, what has happened, what's going on with us. I think the point you mentioned is very important that it's very easy to get the sense from mindfulness practice and from things like retreat that it might be about withdrawing from life but actually it's very much the opposite it's developing a different but very active relationship with the world around you often it's about helping develop a code of ethics as well and really trying to get the most meaning and well-being from life rather than from trying to insulate yourselves from from life so i'm curious about how how things will look for people once we're on the other side of this pandemic and what sort of lessons people will learn from it. We haven't really had such a widespread kind of, we haven't had a generational crisis since probably the the Cold War or, or World War II. What does your, what does your daily practice look like at the um, moment? My daily sort of life practice or mindfulness practice? <laughs> um, your, your daily mindfulness practice. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm really, really very sort of working from home. So I've got a bit of flexibility with regards to structuring my day. I do start, uh, you know, Monday to Friday to feel myself connected to my colleagues by helping to set up a you know, daily meditation practice for them. That also helps me structure my day. Um, and then I uh, normally do my own mindfulness meditation practice, which I really, really enjoy because in the business of life, sometimes I don't necessarily do it at home. I do my mindfulness practice, you know, you know, on my travel to work or sometimes at work um, and much shorter uh, than I'm able to do it now. So that's, that's lovely. Um, I've built a new relationship with my very neglected garden uh, where I sometimes like to sit and meditate. It is, it is not only mindfulness practice is not only about sitting down and sitting in a lotus posture and uh, focusing on your breath. You know, you can take mindfulness any, 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 in, into any kind of activity that we do. It's just sort of paying attention in a slightly different way to what we're actually doing in the moment. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you elaborate a bit on that? So how could, can you expand a bit more on what it means to pay attention in a mindful way? So, so we, we distinguish between the, the more formal practices um, uh, where we basically just sit for half an hour or three quarters of an hour and start kind of going through different aspects of our attention. So we attend to the breath first, 
and then we attend to the body, uh, and then we attend to our sort of hearing, you know, what we have hearing sort of around us, sounds around us, and then we attend to our internal experiences, including our imagery, our thoughts, and our feelings. And we're sort of making these objects of our attention. Um, and that helps us cultivate attentional um, sort of energies, if that makes sense, and, and, and among other things. But we can also experience attention to anything that's happening in the present moment that might be making a cup of tea. Um, so, you know, attending to how we all open the tap and, and basically just fill a jug with water and then sort of starting boiling the water and then putting the tea bag into the water can also be a present moment experience. And just noticing what happens with our body as we do this. How does this feel with our body? So really putting our mind's energy, not into necessarily thinking about the next day or worrying about what's going to happen with the economy or worrying about perhaps getting infected ourselves, but really delivering and saying, well, now I'm just attending to making a cup of tea. Um, so we can literally use present moment awareness and sort of becoming aware of what's going on in the present moment through anything we do in life. So and, and, and as life is perhaps a tiny less busy and perhaps also uh, sort of afflicted by a lot of intensive emotions and stress and perhaps even anxieties, um, we can pay more attention to these kind of little things that we do in life. Yeah, what I've found is that one of the biggest gains from the practice is simply becoming more aware of how the vast majority of the time <clears throat> you're, one is completely lost in thought, usually either about something in the past or, or in the future. And being lost in thought like that completely distorts whatever your present experience happens to be i mean you could be you could be on a beach in thailand and if you're lost in thoughts about the past or the future you might as well not be there you might as you might as well be somewhere else entirely and and so i found that the, the, the benefit of just seeing what your kind of operating system looks like most of the time uh, and then slowly giving you a the attentional tool which you described to pierce through that and you get these brief moments above the clouds where you can realize actually what's possible and what's how it's possible to feel when you're not constantly ruminating it's just so tremendously beneficial yeah i mean basically what you're saying is very 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 important <laughs> That's very meaningful. Where were you when were you were in a beach in Thailand? <laughs> yeah. um, where were you when you were living your life? Uh, and it's very easy to basically miss our lives by basically constantly being somewhere else when we actually are. And that's okay. So I like to say that sometimes. You know, being human, we've got, in comparison to my cat and to our dogs that you know, people might have, you know, we've got as a species a very amazing capacity. Uh, we've got a brain that can simulate other time planes. Uh, we've got a brain that can simulate the future, so it can create the sort of simulation of the future, and we've got a brain that can simulate or re-simulate the past. <clears throat> um, now, from a sort of sort of evolutionary point of view, that's that's the sort of uh, that's the, that was the sort of the big bang, you know, a capacity to do that. So not only are we in the present moment, oh, God, I'm hungry now, well, how can I get food? But we can really simulate what's going to happen next year, how I'm going to make a plan for next year's food vision and also learn from last year when the harvest wasn't going well, you know, some animals came in there and ate half of our food. How can we prevent that next year? So can we, we've got this wonderful capacity <clears throat> and it makes us deeply human and very sort of, and if we're good at it, like lots of doctors you know, that I work with in my mindfulness program with doctors, they're extremely good at planning out the future of their patients. You know, I can see you ill now, but I have got an idea of how we could get you back to where you were before. That's called curing or therapy. So I'm planning out that for you. Mm -hmm. or, or I want to go back and really understand how you became ill in this way so I can prevent it from happening again. So our capacity to do that is marvelous. It's fantastic. And it makes us, as professionals and as human beings, uh, you know, w we've got wonderful abilities to do that. 
Now, <clears throat> there is a problem with that. And the problem is if we don't stop doing it sometimes. <laughs> you know, so if we take our work home and basically say we, we, we've seen our patients and then we, we think about the patients that we saw, you know, when we're at home, we're actually missing out on, on experiencing relaxation. So our mind, for all its qualities and its wonderful capacities, takes us out of the time plane where we are involuntarily. So we're actually not making a choice about doing it. It automatically does it. So we, 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 we overuse the capacity of our mind to basically simulate the past and simulate the future. <clears throat> and so this is where mindfulness comes in and saying, hang on, this is great that you can do that, but can we also sometimes just be with what's happening in the present moment rather than needing to simulate past and future all the time? And the most insidious aspect of it is that we're not even overusing our minds because thought most of the time as you discover through a mindfulness practice, isn't even a voluntary action. Most of the time, thoughts spontaneously appear in our consciousness as do emotions. And that's just happening on a loop over and over again. How many times have you wanted to pay attention to something, actively tried, but it's a struggle, it's an upstream struggle, because try as you might, your mind is constantly producing this this stream of, of distraction. So it's not even that we're choosing to engage in thought because we're, you know, workaholics or something. And then now we have a choice. It's that the default state of the mind appears to be this deluge of distraction. And we're not even aware that that's the case often until we start some sort of introspective practice. I think, again, therapy is interesting to mention because I think although therapy and meditation aren't the same thing, they they work quite well in parallel. How have you found mindfulness to work with cognitive behavioral therapy? Maybe you can explain a little bit what cognitive behavioral therapy is initially. So cognitive behavioral therapy is um, uh, sort of a techniques that we've developed over the last, you know, since the you know, early 70s, perhaps, where we look much more closely at how we can influence our emotional being through uh, the way we perceive or see the world in thoughts. Um, so that's the initial sort of cognition being a thought or belief, a value system. How does that influence our belief system and what we think on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? How does that influence how we feel? Um, and so, so when, we, when we sort of to give an example, you know, if I thought, oh, God, everybody hates me uh, when, I, <laughs> when I actually am on, the, on, a, on a live stream or on a stream of uh, on an audio stream, um, then I might actually be quite anxious in basically being part of an interview. So if that becomes the dominant thought, then that might influence my emotions in a very uh, sort of um, significant way. And so we've become aware of that connection. And there's lots and lots of you know, evidence from labs you know, that show that connection, that our words and the way we think about ourselves is very much influenced on how we feel about ourselves. And to a large degree, our mind just gets it wrong. <laughs> our mind is just, is just providing us with a lot of very distorted you know, facts about ourselves, you know. Um, so we know that minds just throw up a lot of different options of what's happening in the present moment, and we just choose randomly what option we go for, and often it's a very distorted view of the reality. Um, so what we're doing in cognitive therapy is sort of developing a fairer view of what's actually going on in the present moment. Yeah, so we're thinking that, you know, you've got a belief, you know, you're flawed, you know, the belief is I'm flawed, and everybody knows it, um, you know, and we look at, start looking at cognitive therapy you know, in a rather sort of experimental way. How accurate is that actually? You know, what evidence do you have for that? That A, you know, the belief is true, I'm flawed, um, and B, that everybody knows it. Um, and people find that it's actually not the truth about themselves. They're often really, really, most people are good people and most people are trying really hard and people, other people also notice yeah and the other thing is that the other thing is that people are normally concerned with themselves rather than with other people so when often people have a 
an idea that everyone's judging them, thinking about them, making negative judgments about them. Actually, typically, the people they're interacting with are just as self-concerned as, as they are. Absolutely. So, so it's often that we think people are judging us, but 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 actually, we were, as you say, we often are much more absorbed about you know how we judge ourselves. So, so this is sort of something that we learn in cognitive therapy, and it's obviously trying to really, really make it sort of explain it in simple terms. Um, and so, we know that we're developing a different relationship with our thinking process in cognitive therapy. So we're basically finding out our thoughts are not our facts about ourselves. You know, thoughts are just alternatives, simulations, as some people like to call it, about what could be the truth. Um, and so, and this is the overlap with mindfulness in a way that we call that metacognitive awareness. So we're becoming aware of our own processes of thinking and uh, judging ourselves. And so mindfulness and cognitive therapy are in that sense very similar that we are developing in both approaches an awareness of what the mind is actually creating in different assumptions about reality around us. <laughs> so in meditation, we're realizing, oh, God, my thought is really, you know, I'm really critical towards myself because I said something I think people might misconstrue. And why did I say that? Why did I not say in a different way? Oh, God, that's all a lot of rubbish. Everybody thinks that I'm rubbish. You know, so, so we notice our minds sort of going through these hypotheses and we develop a metacognitive awareness of that both through cognitive therapy and through mindfulness meditation, that this is probably just another thought I've had. It's not necessarily the truth about myself. And can I just step back a little bit and develop? And this is a really important aspect we haven't talked about. Develop a friendly and a fairer way of looking at myself as a human being, you know, and sort of really looking at fairness. So all we wanted to achieve is not positive thinking, you know, so we're all great, you know, we're all marvellous um, uh, and we're all fantastic, but it's about a fairer view of ourselves, a more, perhaps a more objective view of ourselves. We're okay and we're trying our best and sometimes we fail and sometimes we get it right and, you know, sometimes we need to start again, you know. Um, so, so that we're developing a softer and a fairer view of what's actually the reality about ourselves actually is. And so in that sense, mindfulness and cognitive therapy overlapping. And we are now using that overlap in order to give people a tool to develop that more friendly and slightly, not detaches the wrong expression, but perhaps a bit more an overview of our mental experience in a slightly different way. And that's how we use it for our patients in relapse prevention of depression. And there's, there's an emphasis at times on compassion that one can learn to treat oneself in a more compassionate way as though one might treat a friend because often we treat others with more fairness, as you mentioned, than we actually treat ourselves. Is it fair to say then that CBT kind of gives you the theoretical framework and mindfulness meditation is the experiential side and so they're working together towards a common end? Um, I would say there's slightly... Um, there's slightly sort of different ways of getting to the same point. Okay. Um, so CBT is very change orientated um, in a way that we're really sort of basically looking at thought. This is a distorted thought is that it's not a fair thought about yourself. Um, can we change it? Um, so it's a very content change uh, sort of uh, orientated approach, very much along the line with what we do in medicine. I mean, medicine is all about change. Uh, you know, you're ill now, I want you to be well. Um, while in mindfulness, we're cultivating uh, much more a, a spirit of non-change, which is paradoxical. Yeah. And we call that sort of more observation of what actually is going on rather than sort of, uh, you know, needing to change it immediately. So, so actually just checking that, so what, what is actually going on? Um, and sort of what is the reality? What is my reality actually right now? rather than, you know, thinking about changing anything. So in that sense, it's a slightly softer approach than CBT. CBT very much like most other things we do in medicine and psychology is about changing things, while mindfulness is much more about observing things as they are. And then change may emerge or may not. Um, so that's the sort of the, the, the choice point then arises more naturally. Oh, this is something... You know, my back is hurting as I sit here in my in my in my on my chair or in my on my cushion. 
um, I can now decide to change my posture and see what happens to my back. Um, but, the, but the change arises more of a softer, make, a softer sort of choice that we make out of just finding out what is actually happening. And what we often find is that what is actually happening is nowhere near what we think is happening. <laughs> you know? um, and so we're, we're learning to distinguish between thoughts are not necessarily our reality. Our reality is often something that, you know, is, is, is something that we can connect to in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. So that idea of allowing things to emerge as they will without that focus of control, I think is very freeing for a lot of us and very freeing for people who do experience problems with anxiety and depression because often i think often those problems emerge from an excess of control or an excess desire for control psychologically speaking and this is a completely different paradigm where you're giving yourself a break essentially and giving yourself the freedom to to step back um what are the situations where you think mindfulness should not be recommended or is not the most helpful approach? Mindfulness is a very broad term. <laughs> and so I, I, I would like to sort of make a little sort of distinction between meditation versus mindfulness. Uh, meditation is, you know, if we use a sports metaphor, meditation is sort of the, uh, the, the, the running, the running exercise while mindfulness is more compared to a sort of um, fitness, cardiovascular fitness metaphor. Um, so if we can see the two as slightly different, um, you know, meditation in itself is a very intensive experience, a very, very emotionally sort of relevant experience. And we know that it can have certain um, unusual or unexpected effects um, where people, for example, people with health anxiety have got a, an exquisite capacity to focus on their bodies. <clears throat> In fact, they're doing nothing else but focusing on their bodies. Um, and so um, when you feel that you might have suffering from an illness, all you're doing constantly is checking in with your body and, oh, God, is there, is there pain now? Is, have I developed an illness now? God, is, my, is there, you know, is that something happening in my body? So... So, for example, people with health anxiety, as an example, may have an, a too strong attention on their bodies. So when we're doing attention to the body and, and other people, we notice that they don't notice their bodies at all. We're often quite cut off from our bodies. So in order to then find the right meditation for the right person, we may you know, find that if we ask somebody with health anxiety to focus on their body more, they're freaking out because... Always been, already been focused on their body so much that actually makes them worse. Um, so, in that sense, we're learning to adapt any kind of mindfulness practice, any kind of meditation practice to what this individual needs. Um, and that's where the softness and the friendliness comes in. And really, always dropping in the question whatever meditation practice we need, you know, how friendly am I doing this? Might like, we're doing this to me? Um, we have got a, a huge amount of people that are extremely self-critical and they use meditation as just another stick to beat ourselves up with, you know, and so they're sitting doing their meditation and saying, God, I can't concentrate. My mind's going off. You know, my body is restless. I want to get up. You know, I'm, I'm asked here to, to, to do meditation. But I'm just rubbish at meditating. Now, so, so this is sort of then when we really say, you know, meditation also needs to be always an experience of friendliness. You know, we're not here to just sort of torture you. But we're here to sort of really bring in how can we cultivate friendliness, you know, together. And for these people, it might actually be useful to not do a sitting meditation, but it, perhaps a walking meditation. We're going for a walk and just noting their body in movement so that they don't sort of be are not overwhelmed by these negative thoughts, you know, throwing sort of just more criticism at them. So that's why meditation needs to be guided by experienced teachers. That's why it needs to be guided by people that really understand meditation from the within. Not anybody who's listened to meditation and memorized the meditation practice can guide other people because it takes a bit of skill to really understand what friendly ethos is and how we can translate it for each individual. So in that sense, any badly guided meditation can be actually unhelpful and can be potentially have side effects like any bad exercise can have 
side effects. Exercise, you know, as much as we know is good for you, if you do it in the wrong way, oh my God, you know, I've injured myself badly in the gym. So have I. Yeah, people die on, on, on their cycles, you know, when they're not wearing helmets. Um, so there's no good or bad tool. There's just a skillful application of a tool and then, and then there's an unskillful application of a tool. So, so that's why I'm sort of really inviting people to think about skillful mindful meditation and skillful mindfulness rather than, you know, just not being guided in a very well way and then sort of doing more harshness to yourself, doing more harm to yourself. Mm, so it's important to recognize that even though from the outside it looks like sitting down with your eyes closed, actually... It's a very powerful intervention and can have very powerful psychological effects. And so it's very important to treat everyone that's doing it as an individual, to have experienced teacher, as you said. Are there any particular psychiatric conditions? You mentioned health anxiety. Are there any other psychiatric conditions where you would be particularly cautious? There's there's obviously a lot of literature, you know, mindfulness like so many things and what we do in psychiatry, everything that works for one condition, we use it for another condition. <laughs> you know, we used um, antipsychotics for, you know, psychotic experience, you know, 50 years ago, and they immediately then we use it for depression and then we use it for ADHD and then we use it for dementia. And, you know, we, 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 we use everything for everything because we think we might get a benefit out of it. And so mindfulness has used, been used for almost all mental health conditions. Um, uh, and there are trials out there and there's modifications of mindfulness. So I'm not saying this in a critical way. I'm saying this in a rather admiring way that we obviously try to see if tools work and can be adapted for all sorts of conditions. Um, I'm a psychiatrist who's also done community psychiatry. I've had a you know, group of very, very psychotic people on the way. Uh, Paul Chadwick, you know, for example, um, has done a lot of work with mindfulness for psychosis. Um, and yet again, I think it needs to be really sort of adapted when people are having hallucinatory experiences, you know, to develop a relationship with these hallucinations in a slightly perhaps sort of distancing way um, through perhaps using short meditation practices might be a way where some emotional change can achieve. You know, we've we've seen people using mindfulness and PTSD. And when you're in the acute phase of PTSD, where you've got very, 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 very emotionally charged intrusions coming in in form of flashbacks or sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, almost pseudo hallucinations, you know, it can be unbelievably sort of difficult for these people to meditate and probably not doing them any much good. So so yet again, we need to think about modification, different types of meditation that there is. There's walking meditation, sitting meditation, standing meditation, um, you know, listening meditation. Uh, there's lots of different forms of what do we use as the object of our meditation. And I think that's why skillful uh, reflection, but also skeptical reflection, you know, skepticism that you mentioned at the beginning is actually useful. You know, we don't want to do harm and we don't want to think that, you know, that if we teach a tool that works for us, it's not a panacea. It needs to be used in a skillful way. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So bearing in mind the individual that you have in front of you, whatever comorbidities they may have and experienced teachers who can modify their the guidance appropriately. Um, if we can get a bit more esoteric into into different kinds of practice, have you... Have you paid much attention to the distinction between a kind of dualistic practice where one has a kind of subject-object relationship and a more non-dualistic awareness where the practice is more about punching through the sense of, of having a self and having a more, we're probably going to lose a lot of listeners at this point, but having a more deconstructed idea of, of one's consciousness? perhaps elaborate slightly more on the deconstructed versus sort of, you know, sort of dualistic sort of version of things. Um, yeah. So uh, essentially my question is, have you, have you in, in your journey through meditation and mindfulness, have you paid much attention to the distinction between the dualistic style of practice where one is a subject paying attention to an object versus a non-dualistic style of practice where anything in one's conscious awareness becomes a potential object of of, of meditation um 
I think what you're alluding to is probably sort of different forms of meditation styles. You know, the the second probably won't be more the, the uh, sort of uh, sort of open awareness meditation, more perhaps along the Zen style uh, in comparison to the inside meditation, which always meditates on an object. Um, I haven't really got that deep um, with regards to these different forms. I know that there's very different schools of meditation, and this is also where there's the dualism between the scientific approach to meditation versus the, the more spiritual tradition sort of feeding, obviously, that sort of that discussion. Um, and I have very much stuck to um, MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy models, which probably comes from the inside meditation tradition in a way that we meditate on an object. And I'm not saying it's the, it's, it's the right or the wrong way of doing it. It's, it's probably the only way I know. <laughs> um, what I like about it is that if we sort of agree on a certain sort of uh, sort of curriculum of meditation practice that we use, we can then it's easier to compare the intervention um, and also to basically make them access to science in a way that we've, we've done this type of meditation. We looked at you know pre and post measures and we looked at how people did and we can make it then accessible to actually what are the effects that we can measure. Um, these debates are going on in the in the in the mindfulness community, um, sometimes quite fierce. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, but I haven't been part of it. That's fair enough. So the, there's a clear, obviously, empirical benefit to to keeping it as simple as possible, and we know enough about the benefits derived from this sort of straightforward dualistic practice. You mentioned before we started recording that you've been writing a book about mindfulness, and maybe you wanted to talk about that a bit. Uh, it's it's always tricky to write to to talk about a, pr- a product that is nowhere near finished. Uh, I'm just sort of giving you a very brief sort of overview without sort of uh, sort of putting too much pressure on myself. <laughs> um, but you know, as you know, I've been delivering sort of mindfulness for doctors program for the last sort of three years or so, and I think you were a part of the first you know first pilot group. You know. Great to connect back to you on that, and out of which has sort of somewhat independently arisen also a, sort of an invitation to write something for doctors um, and write something about mindfulness for doctors. And sort of over the time, you know, the, my sort of work, practical work with doctors, and my sort of theoretical work of thinking about doctors and mindfulness has sort of merged into what I hope would hope would be a book that comes out of this um, as my first book. So I'm sort of a bit shy about talking about it too much because I still feel that, you know, it's, it's nowhere near the finished product. But there are already books for doctors about mindfulness. There's lots of different ways of looking at it. So it's nothing completely new, I'm going to say. But every different individual needs a different way of understanding it. So, so you know, psychologists are generally much more embracing about mindfulness as a, as a concept than doctors have been. As doctors, as you said in the beginning, are perhaps more sceptical um, and consider these kind of, you know, I'd like to call it inverted commas, softer sort of approaches as something that doesn't really sort of interest them so much. They want really sort of very change-orientated um, sort of hard data and hard things, you know, possible that, that actually work. So so what I've tried, I don't know how successful I have been, but uh, is obviously sort of giving doctors a way into uh, making mindfulness something that's worth engaging with. Um, it's not just sort of something airy fairy, tree hugging, sort of, uh, sort of uh, <laughs> esoteric. Um, it's it, it's something that has got an evidence base to it. It's you know there's a big community of people out there. It works. And what I what I nowadays really think is you know is also something that sort of supports us as doctors. Doctors have got a huge amount of sort of health needs, um, and how can we sort of look after our own emotional well-being as much as we look after our physical well-being. You know, I think we're all good at thinking about, oh, I need to go to the gym, I need to exercise, do my running, do my marathons, whatever people do. I don't, th- I don't even think we're all good at doing that, to be honest. We're at least good at thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. well, we, we might feel guilty about it, but we're good at thinking and knowing that we should at least do it and drink less alcohol. and you know, so, so we all should do this, but we don't have necessarily have a should about our emotions. Um, so, so I'm not going to try to introduce another should, but perhaps sort of we can make our emotional well-being and our emotional well-being almost like another area of our lives that we can sort of start looking after more systematically in a soft way, in a friendly way, but in a very systematic way. So we're really saying 
here's my body, you know, here's my career, you know, here's my house, here's my emotions that I look after. So that's the way I've sort of framed it for people. How can I keep myself as an emotional being uh, well? And, you know, we're dealing with so many emotions as doctors. You know, we're dealing with everybody else's emotions. How can we look after our own? Yeah, I think I think that's a very a very good point. And as doctors are just constantly engaging with the more tragic and unforgiving aspects of what life has to offer, to to have that tool and that skill set is something that you can't emphasize enough. And I think that's a very excellent point to end on. Um, I wish you the best of luck with your book. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you this morning. And I hope he stays safe throughout the rest of this crisis. Dr. Roots, thank you very much. You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love it if you share it with a friend or you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you fancy it, you can even buy us a coffee to support the team. And the links for that will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening.